Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Antebellum and late 19th century New York City, nothing could clear a street faster than the cry of mad dog. Rabies was perhaps the most feared disease of the era, and because animals and humans lived in such close proximity, even as New York was growing into a city of millions, that proximity led people to always have in the back of their mind a dread of what might possibly happen to either them or their children. As Jessica Wong describes in her wittily titled new book, Mad Dogs and Other New Yorkers, rabies overlaps many areas of transformation in an era of transformation. Medicine, urban politics, urban geography, and cultural imagination all take their turn under her investigative gaze. The result is not a history of a disease, but the history of a society at a particularly important moment in its self-creation. Jessica Wong is Associate Professor of History at the University of British Columbia. She has previously written American Science in an Age of Anxiety, Scientists, Anti-Communism, and the Cold War. Jessica Wong, welcome to Historically Thinking. Um, thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. So um, my, my first question uh, that I wanted to kick off with, uh, I noted with pleasure uh, as I read the book, that it's hard to figure out uh, what kind of history this is. And uh, based on your previous book, I, I take it that you began sort of as a historian of science, but there's really everything in this book, and, and, and that's a good thing, isn't it? I like to think so. That was certainly <laughs> part of the pleasure of writing it. Um, yeah, you know, it's, I guess at its most basic, I think of it as a social history of medicine. It's mm -hmm. a history of a specific disease in a specific urban setting, um, but as you've just noted, it crosses a lot of different areas of, of history, a lot of different sub-disciplines. And you're reading medical papers, newspaper accounts, from lurid to staid. Um, what other sort of sources were you, did you use for this? Yeah, um, there was a rather limited archival base, but I used what I could, especially in the um, municipal archives in New York City. Uh, most of the archival sources that one ideally would have liked to have used for this book simply don't exist anymore. Huh. They've just, um, you know, been lost. Um, the administrative records for the public health bureaucracy, for example, just aren't very rich. Um, there's very little left. Really? Most of the major physicians I would have been interested in, their papers don't exist, et cetera, et cetera. How did you, how did you find that out? I mean, that, that's a nice, there's a nice teaching moment here for researchers. I mean, you were looking for papers of doctors and you tried, how did you try to find them? And, and at what point did you conclude that they didn't exist? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the physicians I was interested in were very well known. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if their papers existed they would have been easy to find. They would have been archived. And so, you know, I, I would say Google is your friend yeah. here. They, um, they, would, they were going to be at Harvard, Yale, or Columbia. Or, or, or Columbia. they would be probably in New York City. You know, New York Academy of Medicine would sure. have been a good candidate or any of the universities that the individual physicians were um, associated with. Some of them were in the public New York City Department of Health. And, um, you know, had that department kept more of its own records, you know, one might have expected a lot of their materials there. Um, a couple of these physicians, there were actually sort of old style hagiographic biographies written of them. Yeah. And in one of them, you know, entire letters were quoted. Wonderful. And so, you know, I looked for, you know, not only the actual um, physicians, papers, but maybe the, the physician who wrote this biography, I looked to see if he, he had been at Yale. So I looked to see if his papers still existed. And maybe those letters would have been tucked away in his papers somewhere, but they appeared to be simply gone. Hmm. You said uh, before we began recording that um, you couldn't imagine doing this um, without a newspaper database. Um, could you, would you explain what you mean by that? Um, yeah, it's because, you know, I follow this, rabies is a sort of 
highly feared, but at the same time, relatively rare and obscure disease in some ways. You know, there are very few human cases. And so they would have been hard to detect without digitized databases, I think. And also the way I got into the book was simply, you know, one day I went onto the New York Times ProQuest database and I just keyword searched hydrophobia for the period from 1851 to 1920. <laughs> I got about 3,000 hits and I just started going through them and just, you know, was quickly discovering all sorts of interesting things about this disease and how people in New York responded to it that I would have been hard pressed to get into the project that quickly if I had had to do it any other way. So was that the first time that you were interested in it? Were you just sort of noodling around the idea about hydrophobia and rabies? You sort of searched on New York Times database and you were off? Pretty much. I mean, I was actually kind of thinking more generally about what, I mean, it's a longer story. I had a different project that I was working on that was going very, very slowly. And the more I worked on it, the more I think the potential readership was shrinking, <laughs> even, even though it's work I like. It's yeah. Even by academic press standards. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, it's a very specialized project that involves some hardcore history of political economy. Huh. But um, so as that was going very slowly, I, um, I started thinking it would be really fun to do something on people and pets. And I outlined. <laughs> Yeah, I outlined a six-chapter book. One of those chapters was on dogs and rabies in the city. And then I don't know how much time sort of intervened, but at one point when I, again, was feeling tired of this other project, that's when I went to the New York Times database, and then I was off. So that became a, a sort of guilty um, delight, a sort of a vacation from the other project, became, became a book. <laughs> Yeah, became like my full-time research <laughs> So uh, one of the things I, as I was thinking about this, I mean, you, you mentioned that uh, their rabies is around all the time, and you're contrasting that with, say, uh, cholera in this period, where there are cholera epidemics. I'm thinking of the more, in my own terrain, the yellow fever epidemics of the 1790s in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. um, even the plague uh, seems to have its, has its own rhythm. I mean, people will get plague, but there are times at other times. But then like in 1348, people get, 1355, people get plague and they get a lot of plague. Um, <laughs> so uh, what's the difference? I mean, what, where, what, is, what is rabies, scientifically speaking, biologically speaking? Yeah, I mean, biologically speaking, it's, um, as we understand it today, it's caused by a virus that does damage to the nervous system. If you wanted to get very technical, you would talk about the different variants of that virus. I think they're basically something like six families of the sort of, um, of the rabies lysoviruses. So it's a specific virus within a class of viruses called lysoviruses. Mm. You know, I was reading up last night because I didn't actually read that heavily into the current literature for the book, but I was reading a bit last night about sort of genetic studies of rabies and- Hopefully not know, for this conversation because I wasn't going to yeah, ask anything yeah. about that. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, for example, it probably wasn't in dog populations in North America until European- um, arrival and colonization. It, sure. it, it appears in North America prior to European contact to have been in bat and skunk populations, but it doesn't appear to have reached the dogs of indigenous people. So it has a different disease epidemiologies or disease ecologies depending on um, place and time. Well, it's interesting. I wonder if that's um, because of the relatively small domestic animal population amongst the indigenous people. I mean, given their own small population structures and typically, at least in North America, with a few exceptions, diffuse um, societal structure, maybe uh, maybe it required urbanization in the 19th century to really put rabies into the dog population. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. And I, I think that's kind of... Um, it, that's kind of prescient on your your part to detect that because that's actually you know what I was reading last night also makes that suggestion that in sparser populations it's less likely to cross into canines and if it does it's less likely to continue to perpetuate itself. Yeah, so I would I, I'm actually surprised it was still I thought it would be one of those things that Alfred Crosby referred to as, as sort of part of ecological imperialism 
so many yeah. di- diseases were, you know, in Eurasia and Africa and had had ceased or never made it to the Western Hemisphere. It's interesting that it was still it was actually here. Um, so uh, there are I, I suggested to you that people cultures fear d- different diseases at different times. Um, there always seems to be a disease of the decade or of the quarter century or something like that. Um, plague, smallpox, uh, the fears of those um, mark different eras. Um, do you think that a fear of rabies, do you think people feared rabies more than they feared cholera or just differently in the 19th century? Yeah, I think it's probably it's differently. And rabies just has this almost, you know, atavistic status, I yeah. think, in the imagination i mean because it's this disease first of all it's been known in different parts of the world for a very long time yes you know earliest written reference goes back about four thousand years um reference to disease that i think you know we look at and we say oh that sounds like rabies to us today um so an association between you know disease and dogs and the kind of violent madness that's been around for a long time um, the thing about rabies is, I mean, like cholera, it does have sort of sudden outbreaks, mm. but they, it just doesn't kill the numbers of people because the animal that per- perpetrates it, you, you know, usually dies or just gets killed very quickly and people start culling animals uh, um, as a consequence. <laughs> Nonetheless, there's a level of fear and sort of notoriety associated with rabies that's very different from, you know, other diseases. So that gets it to what, how people conceive of rabies in the 19th century. Uh, you make the uh, comment um, that modern rabies and hydrophobia are not the same disease, um, which I find very, uh, that's a very sweet insight, but um, you're, you're going to have to explain that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this is partly part of what historians of medicine do today when mm-hmm. they think about diseases, that they try to be conscious about not just drawing simple equivalencies between disease conditions in the past and disease conditions in the present. That, you know, at one level, I think it's fair to say that biologically, we're talking about more or less the same disease agent that was working biologically in the past in the same way that it does in the present. And that, you know, to that extent, we can say that in the 19th century, when people talked about hydrophobia and we talk about rabies, we are talking about in some sense that's maybe not super rigorous philosophically, we're talking about the same disease. But that that having been said, we don't want that perspective to cloud our ability to understand what what diseases look like from people's own perspectives in the past. And so in that sense, we want to enter into the kind of 19th century mind and, and, and to think about, you know, well, what did hydrophobia mean to them? How did they understand how it was spread, how it was generated? You know, what was their sort of theory of disease behind that? And we can do that with any disease, you know, rather, you know, we can talk about is bloody flux simply the same as dysentery or what did it mean to talk about bloody flux? Or one of the classic examples is um, is uh, a syphilis that, you know, one of the early studies pointed out that that what we today call syphilis in, say, I think it's sort of the late medieval period is understood as three separate disease conditions. So, you know, when I make that statement early in the book, it's an effort to get readers to kind of move into the historical past and to sort of try and leave their own preconceptions behind and enter into a 19th century mindset. Yeah, it's uh, it's sort of, a, I guess, an example of historical phenomenology, isn't it? Where we have to have uh, adapt a different perspective on what might seem familiar, but understand it might be the same. Uh, it might be the rhabdovirus with an RNA-based genome, but it's being conceptualized in an entirely different way that we have to enter into. Exactly. I mean, it's something as simple as, as, simple as knowing that you know, disease agents, until you get germ theory in the, the last third or so of the 19th century, you know, the idea that there are living self-replicating organisms that are sort of invisible to the naked eye, but cause disease, that cause infectious disease. I mean, that's not what people are thinking of when they think about the transmission of rabies earlier. Um, they do talk about a rabies virus, but the older 
notion of a virus was that this was a poison or a toxin, that in the case of rabies, it was somehow generated in the body of the mad dog. It wasn't you know, conceived of as any kind of living or self-replicating substance. Um, so that's already a kind of different conception of the disease at work. So you uh, make a connection between dogs' disease and civilizational anxiety. Um, what is that connection? Mm -hmm. Well, the connection between dogs' disease and civilizational anxiety is something that really emerges very powerfully in the late 19th century in New York City, in the sense that, you know, we know the late 19th century as this era of um, globally as an era of imperialism and an era in which um, the sort of societies are measured by their civilizational status, by, you know, how they rank, how whether or not they're civilized. Um, and that, you know, partly this is imperial hubris, but partly in the context of the late 19th century American city, this, this sort of civilizational uh, belief, it's not really a form of confidence. It's a form of bravado because there's this constant anxiety about, well, are, are cities really civilized or, you know, and, and ha if they are, to what extent can their civilized status be preserved against all the forces of, in particular, uh, all the forces of chaos, of social disorder? Italians. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Racial degeneration, as the phrase went in that day. Mm -hmm. And but you know, it's a very distinct late nineteenth century discourse in the in in the sense that you know, in the mid nineteenth century. There were similar anxieties about immigration and about the Irish population, right? Mm -hmm. and, and that famous phrase, the vicious and disorderly classes. But it's not really discussed in these civilizational terms in the same way that emerges in the late 19th century. So it's this era of anxiety about the sort of tenuous hold of civilization in the city. But at the same time, there's also that classic anxiety that maybe urban life is over-civilized, that there's too much refinement. You know, this is the classic Theodore Roosevelt, oh, yeah. the life kind of the, um, concern. The, right, and uh, not forgetting to not forgetting the barbarian virtues. Uh, exactly. Uh, yeah, and this it's is... Like, you know, the nation needs the barbarian virtues. That's right. Theodore Roosevelt's argument. You can't have, be a great national power without them. And, and so, at, at the same time, uh, in, 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 and then in his own political life, a great concern for, I mean, running for assemblyman because no, men of his class should, uh, as an act of civic hygiene, as it were, mm -hmm. commissioner of mm -hmm. police and all the rest of that stuff. Um, and this is, of course, a very old American argument going back to Jefferson and beyond um, mm -hmm. about even the place of the city in American society. And then also there's many things are bound up in this. Um it's also a, a, a city which is um, growing amazingly fast. I I can't find now my notes where I uh, where you point out it went from like four hundred thousand in the eighteen forties to seven million by nineteen hundred, um, and yet it's also it's a city of seven million in which animals and humans live in intimate contact in a way which is against the ordinance, ordinances even of Charlottesville, Virginia, and um, also a way I think psychologically we just wouldn't understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't, I, you know, I can't bring the population figures to mind right now. Yeah, either. it's big, I'm yeah. Sure the city quite that big, but it is big. It quickly becomes the biggest city in the United States. It grows quickly. If you want to know about all the problems of urban growth, well, they happen in New York City first. Um, and it's a city that's at the same time full of animals. Um, you know, they're just uh, domesticated animals are everywhere. Dogs and cats roam about on their own because, you know, their movements aren't regulated and there isn't an ethic that their movements ought to be regulated the same way that there is today. Mm -hmm. And it's also a city of working horses, which are the key to transportation infrastructure. It's a city where, you know, cattle are being um herded into slaughterhouses where, you know, pigs and other livestock also have to be moved into slaughterhouses and where sometimes, you know, people are still keeping their own pigs, goats, chickens, and other critters as a source of food. Mm -hmm. So the city that's 
full of animals. And I think that would be, as I was thinking about, there would be the amount of animal noise in, say, 1890s New York would be really stunning to us. Yeah, or I think what would be particularly stunning and that we can't recreate is the smell of the city. Yeah, well, students always say that about the past, but then I was, I was, so I, I wanted to, avoid, I wanted to avoid that smell thing, and it would, it's much worse than we think, um, given the amount of animals there. Uh, but yeah, it's also just damn noisy. I mean, horses and pigs and chickens. I mean, they're loud. Um, mm -hmm. Just listening to like ten horses eat at the simultaneously—that's loud. Um, yeah, you know, and there are uh, also complaints about cats yowling at night. And yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> all of that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly. And and dogs just wandering around, you know, looking for a good time. Um, mm -hmm. The um, as you point out, like a death of a horse for someone uh, it might be a personal loss, uh, but it's quite certainly an economic loss at this time, which we don't. Again, psychologically, it's very that's very different for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the discourse is one that sort of, you know, animals are described frequently as either vi valuable or useless. I mean, these are <laughs> economic categories that um, that are in common use to sort of judge animals and their and their roles. And within that kind of hierarchy from value to uselessness, um, horses rank very highly because for people who depend on horses for their livelihood, their significant capital expense. Mm -hmm. And so rabies is uh, an economic threat um, whenever it pops up. It is not merely um, a threat to human life. That's, as you've suggested, that's relatively infrequent. But I, I, sus I expect that's much more frequent that a horse or a cow would be bitten and go, uh, go rabid or be mm -hmm. killed. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure it's more frequent in the sense that I don't think there are any good statistics, so okay. hard to know. Um, you know, if there was if there was a rabbit dog, you know, its likelihood of biting other animals and valuable animals versus humans, I'm actually not sure. I think that's hard to gauge. Mm. Um, but the meanings attached to um, the death of animals versus humans are somewhat different in that with animals, there's always this calculation of value attached to loss. It also, I think, affects, although the book doesn't get this far because it focus, focuses only on New York City, but the fact that rabies in the city is sort of governed as a public health issue, as a matter of threat mainly to human health versus in rural areas, um, Rabies control is kind of under the um, sort of mandate of the New York State Department of Agriculture. Hmm. And I think that speaks to the ways in which in a more rural area, the key problem with rabies is less its threat to human health and more its threat to people's animals and their livelihoods. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about human health, though. Let's talk about the, the weirdest part of the of the book in some ways, the, the most gruesome part, uh, which will enliven any dinner. Um, you write, beyond fears of infection, measures of economic loss, and feelings of empathy and sentiment, tacit assumptions about spiritual or otherwise mystic connections between humans and animals shaped American responses to hydrophobia. What? Please explain that. What are the mystical connections to animals? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you look into sort of the ways in which people thought about the transmission of the disease and the sorts of measures you could take to protect yourself. If you look at the kind of folk remedies surrounding rabies, I mean, that's where you start to sense there are these unstated connections between humans and animals in which nobody phrases it this way. But in a sense, the assumption is that the, the rabid animal that bites you somehow has a hold over you even after that act of biting uh -huh. and that and that there are measures you can take to break that hold for example you can just kill the dog that will somehow protect you or you can cut off its tail and burn it or you know some people are hardy enough to conceive of you might cook its heart or its liver and eat it and you know these sort of forms of protection, I mean, it's speculative on my part because nobody actually says this is how this works, but it's hard to imagine um, measures like that having efficacy unless they're somehow 
unless somehow the animal still has a hold, its essence somehow still has a hold over its human bite victim, and that hold has to be broken through any of these techniques. I mean, what we're talking about is the intermingling of souls. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, in it, some it's, sense. Yeah, yeah, we're getting really platonic here very fast. I mean, that somehow the two essences have been combined. And there's like, mm-hmm. there's a fear of the, this is like, and we're deep into like werewolf territory. This is the, mm-hmm. the fear of the hybrid animal uh, mm-hmm. and, or, and, or of the even worse in some ways of the human becoming completely bestial rather than being also partly spiritual. Yeah, I think that's actually exactly right. That this has to do with fears of, you know, an animal bite that's capable of turning a human into a monster in which the human loses all rationality, all sense of self-control and is reduced to animality. Uh, let me just read a description from uh, it, it's the most, as you say, it's much more explicit than most accounts. Um, it's also like something out of uh, Robert Louis Stevenson or Edgar Allan Poe. I mean, it's really fantastic. It's from a doctor in Wales who is attending a ship's captain near Cape May, New Jersey in the summer of 1852, and the ship's captain is dying of rabies. Wales writes, In the flitting and varied expressions which passed over the countenance of the unfortunate patient toward the close of life, there were exhibited such appearance as, appearances as would lead the beholder, without much stretch of the imagination, to suppose that the rabid creature whose deadly poison was circulating through his system by its bite, had worked out the effect of transforming his very nature into its own, there was the rabid canine expression as fully depicted as the human features would in any wise allow. Yow. I mean, that says it right there. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, throughout the second half of the 19th century, you also have physicians saying, you know, we know this isn't literally what's happening, but, you know, you would you see the symptoms and you can't help but liken them to, say, you know, the, the barking of a dog or um, or other kinds of characteristics of the biting animal. And one and this is not confined to dogs. Uh, one woman who's bitten by a cat, the uh Patterson, New Jersey paper reports that she ate very little in her last weeks of life, and even then she lapped it up like a cat. Yeah, exactly. And the, these are the clues that tell you that there, there are these unspoken assumptions, again, about the connections between human and animal essences, that, um, that cat bite victims, I mean, they might be described as also exhibiting some um, dog-like symptoms, but... People who aren't bitten by cats are never described <laughs> as exhibiting cat-like symptoms. I mean, I, I didn't find a single example. Um, and so, you know, there are all these examples in which, you know, somebody else is bitten by a horse and gets rabies and they're described as sort of neighing like a horse, you yeah. know, like a horse. And, um, and again, those symptoms aren't described if somebody's not bitten by a horse. And so... These are the things that kind of tell you that people are making assumptions about the symptoms based on the animal that did the biting. And that, that again, there are these unspoken assumptions at work here, therefore. There's, you, you point out there's a, there's a way that uh, rabies challenges another cultural assumption or cultural desire, and that is for uh, a dying person to have a good death. This is another another psychological barrier between us and the concept of the good death. I think we still have it in some ways, um, mm-hmm. but um, it's certainly one of the ways in which, uh, say, 1890, 1860 New York is much closer to 1360 France than it is to us. Uh, so what's the good death and how does rabies sort of stymie a person's ability to enjoy one? Yeah, I'm not sure if it's closer to, you know, 14th century France. Hey, I'm, being, I'm being provocative. Come on. Yeah. yeah. Well, in the sense that because, well, just because discourses of death are increasingly secularized um, after sure. the Civil War. And so, you know, they matter less as a kind of presaging of one's, you know, future in the afterlife. And they matter more as just the hope for an, an easy passage um, mm-hmm. out of life. But um, but anyway, so what was the question? The question was, I mean, how does uh, obviously then uh, rabies, the, the, the threat of possession 
uh, this is, I'll turn it into a point. The threat of possession obviously is it does does not lie nicely together with the idea of a good death, of a, right. a, a tranquil be, uh, uh, bed death with saying goodbye to one's beloved, last words, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, the symptoms of rabies are extreme, um, and which is part of why the disease has such a kind of, um, it, you know, powerful reputation. Um, the the disease, course of the disease typically involves uncontrollable spasms, spasms that are frequently set off by just very kind of minor stimuli, like exposure to life. Uh, sorry, exposure to light might suddenly set off spasms or the blowing of like wind through a window or the entry of a person into um, into the patient's room that would, would just set up these completely horrible and uncontrollable paroxysms. On top of that, it was not uncommon for people to suffer delirium as well as a part of these uncontrollable symptoms. Um, and, and so this is a disease that just, just by virtue of its symptoms alone defies the hopes that people would sort of, um, as you say, have a tranquil death, be able to sort of calmly prepare for, for, um, for, for leaving, um, the world of the living, that they would hopefully have a chance to, you know, see family and friends, to have them gather, to say warm goodbyes. And this is a disease that just frequently simply did not allow that. Mm -hmm. And it's also a, a disease that's so mysterious that nearly any sort of attempt to cure it um, from what vapor baths to basically using the, the a goat's uh, a bezoar stone which is a, a medieval, all those are in some sense legitimate. You write on page 85, you say, indeed, the, this diverse medical environment of, of late 19th century medicine made syncretism the name of the game, especially with a disease as incurable as rabies, for which no claims of efficacy ever surmounted the malady's reputation for fatality. And then, since nothing worked, everything became possible. Uh that's really horrifying uh, when you're a sufferer or uh, are afraid of being a sufferer in the late 19th century. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, until, um, until the development of Pasteurian rabies vaccination in 1885, um, you know, the only course of action that, you know, appears to have had any kind of efficacy, you know, statistically would have been cauterization of the wound that if you were bitten and immediately had the wound, cauterized um, and, and attempted to basically prevent the circulation of the presumed toxin in the body, that appears to have significantly reduced one's chances of contracting the disease um, if bitten. Um, you know, not as effective as Pasteurian rabies vaccination later on, but, um, but better than nothing. But once people were symptomatic, and this is still true today, there was really no effective treatment. I mean, today there's one thing that might have efficacy, which involves um, putting people into induced comas and um, and giving them massive treatments of antiviral agents. But in the handful of cases where that perhaps has worked, and it's not clear if that procedure actually works or if... Um, if bat rabies might actually be somewhat less virulent than canine rabies. Hmm. But anyway, in the few cases of more recent survival on record, it's still, it's a devastating disease that involves a long recovery period. So I, I didn't realize that, that Pasteur's cure doesn't work. Uh, it has to be given immediately? It's a vaccine. Yeah. Uh, so the thing is, you know, with rabies, there's a, quite a long incubation period between when you're bitten and when you come down with symptoms. I, I mean, typically it's kind of on the order of um, one to two months. And so after you're bitten, if you if you if pa the Pasteurian procedure is available, you can undertake vaccination and build immunity to the disease. Mm -hmm. But you know, it's ideally done as soon as possible. Certain bites are more dangerous than others because basically the virus has to get access to your central nervous system and move through it and up into 
your brain, I guess, <laughs> for understanding. Um, but but because it has that mechanism, you have time to act. So this is why people get, if they're bitten by a suspicious animal, they go get shots right away mm-hmm. so they can build up immunity um, after the bite. Okay. So you have time. But if you don't act quickly or if you're bitten, say, on the face where, you know, the, the virus then has, has a much shorter route to your brain, um, that's much more dangerous. You may have much less time or not enough time at all. One um, sort of, that's not a side issue. It's kind of actually important to the story um, is that medical progress had in by the end of the 19th century, I mean, right prior to Pasteur, had really been, its foundation was anatomy or anatomization. Um, mm-hmm starting in the Middle Ages, uh, late Middle Ages, with people starting to take really good dissections and starting to understand how all this stuff in there worked. Um, rabies challenged that. Uh, how? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, for American physicians in the 19th century, anatomy is central to their understanding that medicine is a science. And you understand disease and disease processes by trying to find the identifiable, visible, physical markers of particular diseases, the the specific lesions associated with specific conditions in order to understand the disease. Um, The problem with rabies is that it just didn't leave these kinds of bodily traces that physicians would do autopsies and all they could describe were sort of big kinds of appearances. Um, They couldn't find anything that would allow you to say, yes, this person definitely died from hydrophobia. Um, Now, the expectation throughout much of the 19th century was as you got new methods, as you developed cellular methods, um, and as microscopy microscopy took off, for example, Mm -hmm. the expectation was that, well, okay, we can't see anything at the level of gross anatomy if, if we look at the organs. But surely now that we have the microscope and we have all these new staining techniques, we'll find something at the cellular level that will allow us to say definitively that somebody died from rabies. But um, that isn't what happened, that time and again, this expectation failed. And so this was a, a real challenge to this kind of fundamental assumption about disease and how it worked and what the nature of medicine was as a science. Hmm. You, uh, make a point about the democratization of American medicine at that time. Um, I mean, it's, um, which I think is a fascinating one. You say regular physicians own endorsement of the democratic political culture of the 1830s and 1840s further complicated their effort to herald the singular nature of their knowledge and medical command by 1830s, by the 1830s guidebooks sought to counter quackery by demystifying medical treatment and stressing general principles for sustaining health, which was supposed to lead lay readers to distrust all the various other uh, cranks, medicine shows, and stuff that was going on out there. Um, Did rabies undermine that? I mean, did it... um, There there seems to be something that's going... There's a push and tug going on here in medicine that's reflective in the the wider culture. Um, It's by the time that rabies is... uh, Pasteur comes up with his cure... Um, the Hopkins Hospital has been founded. Uh, we've got the increasing scientization uh, of American medicine. And yet at the same time, we've had this very democratic um, arena of American medicine. Uh, where does rabies fit into that? Yeah, I think certainly prior to Pasteur and rabies vaccination, that democratic arena combined with the lack of any kind of um, curative therapy for rabies, that combines to sort of uphold the wide variety of sort of treatment options in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the problem for physicians with, with treating rabies is they don't have much to offer. Huh. And their problem, yeah, and their problem in general as physicians is frequently they don't have that much to offer. Yeah. Yet the allopathic school of medicine, they're trying to establish that theirs is the only legitimate form of medical practice, that you should distrust other kinds of practitioners, and that you should believe in the authority of the allopathic physician. And but but at the same time, you know, they also kind of like these medical guides 
they also tell you, well, you know, here are the things to look out for. These are the sort of regimens you should try. And I think at the same time, these kinds of medical texts, which often the recommendations aren't that different from what you would hear if you actually went to, especially a country doctor, mm-hmm. that, um, that these texts kind of tell readers that actually they can be their own physician. So maybe they don't necessarily need the exalted authority of, of the regular physician. So that's a kind of problem in a democratic society. So, so I, yeah. yeah. So Pasteur's cure is not just a sort of landmark in the uh, history of medicine or of history of science, uh, sort of specifically understood. But for someone like me who's interested in culture and institutions, uh, Pasteur's cure is a major victory for in the in the march of allopathic medicine and creating those sorts of cultural institutions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is why, you know, in the history of medicine, the history of germ theory looms so large, uh-huh. because it does um, add this new sense of authority to kind of laboratory based medicine, and the kinds of things that, um, that it allows, even as it also in some ways challenged prevailing medical assumptions as well. And so, you know, I write a bit about Pasteur's critics among physicians. And one of the problems with his methods is that if you believe in this anatomical framework and you believe that the essence of kind of medical reasoning is to detect these sort of physical changes in the body that are visualizable, well, Pasteur's work doesn't, you know, his vaccination method doesn't work that way at all. He was drawing inferences from laboratory solutions and this sort of invisible active agent that was in them that was so small it couldn't even be seen through a microscope. And But his argument was that by following his methods and manipulating laboratory materials in the appropriate way, you could vaccinate people and statistical evidence showed that his vaccination procedures worked. I mean, that's the sort of Pasteurian argument. But to someone who believes that, like, that who is dedicated to the notion that you only really understand disease if you see its physical manifestations in the body, like Pasteur sounds really suspicious and even plausible, especially in a culture where there are all of these people with all of their kind of claims about how to treat particular diseases and, and you know, and it's the whole world of patent medicine and everything else. So, you know, from that perspective, is Pasteur really this amazing, eminent scientist who's achieved this incredible breakthrough? Or is this another example of quackery? Are we going to find out at some point that the wool has been pulled over our eyes? And, you know, and, you know, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, outside of my sort of commitment to perspectivalism as a historian. I, I you know, I thoroughly endorse Pasteur's methods and the sure. results. But from the perspective of the time period, these were pretty legitimate and respectable objections. No, I it's, think- it's a wonderful thing about your book is that you take us back into that into that moment in which very smart people with evidence on their side can have severe doubts about uh, a, about a man who is, is in the process of transforming society uh, and world history in many ways, uh, more than most scientists have ever dreamed of doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's part of what I like about history of medicine as it's done today is that ability to sort of make sense of ways of thinking that when you look at them from at first glance with your own kind of contemporary prejudices, they look implausible. Sometimes they look just outright wacky. Yeah. But if you're patient enough, you can kind of figure out the logics by which certain things work and the sort of social systems that kind of ungird them, you know, whether it's Pasteurian rabies vaccination or vapor baths or the mad stone as rabies <laughs> remedies, right? Right. What, uh, when did Pasteur's method, when did it sort of win out finally, in, at least in New York City? I mean, when, when was like the moment of victory? And, and did people, it seems to me, given the nature of this disease, it wasn't quite like the moment when people first started getting polio shots. It wasn't sort of like a societal victory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of maybe it is and it isn't. It isn't in the sense that not everybody gets vaccinated because you don't need to. You right, only get right. vaccinated if you have a suspicious bite. Um, but it is that kind of scale of triumph in the sense that, you know, 
after Pasteur kind of makes his kind of famous announcement of October 1885, mm -hmm. people start people who are worried they've been bitten by a rabid animal, they start traveling to Paris pretty quickly and in wow. large numbers to be evaluated and to get shots. And, you know, the famous example from America is the saga of the so-called Newark boys who, um, who um, Bert Hansen kind of wrote a very good article about years ago. But, you know, these were, uh, um, uh, this was a group of boys from like, Newark, New Jersey, who they were not very well off, but one of the newspapers raised the funds after they were bitten by a sus suspected mad dog. Local newspaper raised the funds to send them to Paris to be vaccinated. And this was like a big, big story in New York City. Yeah. Um, so in that sense, I think the, um, the sort of sense of possibility spreads very quickly. But it's more gradual because, first of all, not everyone who's bitten can afford to go. So they certainly can't afford to go to Paris. And plenty of people who are bitten elsewhere in the country, they can't afford to go to New York either. And so this is why alternatives like the Madstone, you know, they, they continue in some ways to be more pragmatic alternatives than Pasteur and rabies vaccination. Because people, you know, to be able to – so um, – Pasteur and makes his announcement in fall of 1885. There's a group of New York physicians in 1886 who try to establish an American Pasteur Institute to provide vaccinations free to those in need. Um, for various reasons, that institution doesn't manage to establish itself. And so it's in 1890 that a physician from Paris named Paul Gibier opens up the New York Pasteur Institute manages to make it a going concern. And so there's an established institution in New York City where you can go and undertake vaccination if you really think you need it. Problem is you have to be able to travel there. And also um, rabies vaccination takes about takes around two or three weeks of injections in this time period. So you also have to be able to stay in New York for that length of time. And if you're not pretty well off, this is pretty difficult for um, prospect. There are even, I mean, there's even a case I found of a family in nearby New Jersey that it was actually a real hardship for them to take their child into New York City and have these vaccinations. That, um, have these injections done when they also they had other children at home they had to take care of they needed to work I mean you know these were for some people insurmountable obstacles uh -huh. um, so you know so uh, at one level it takes off very quickly at another level though it's not always practical for people you uh, have a chapter another uh, great title uh, dogs in the making of the American state uh, just as we're heading towards the end here um, how does this sort of post-pasture idea of, well, I mean, this goes, extends before pasture, but then as, as people are trying to um, make the city more hygienic, um, how does this lead to a growth of, of uh, argument between private and public um, power and then to the creation of uh, state power? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the fascinating things for me, because, you know, uh, sort of at my core, I think of myself as a U.S. political historian, even though I've just written a book that's mainly social history and history of medicine. Yeah. You know, for me, that chapter is the chapter that's kind of the most familiar ground for me. Uh -huh. And um, and what struck me is that, you know, so the, in the history of New York City, when it comes to the politics of canine animal control, um, what happens is that eventually in the 1890s, it is the... American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, the ASPCA, that gets the governmental power, that gets the delegated police power to enforce the dog laws and to run the city pound. And, um, and their appointment replaces a system that had relied on patronage appointments of dog catchers. That system replaced an even earlier bounty system in which people could just to sort of remove stray dogs from the street. People could gather them and take them to City Hall and get a bounty for them. Um, so there are these successive systems of animal control. Now, what's distinctive about the ASPCA is you think about it. How is it? that an organization, this private voluntary association, a citizen's organization, is actually 
exercising governmental power. Isn't that a violation of the public-private boundary? Well, well, not then, apparently. Not then. And if you think about it, yeah, the, at, if you start thinking more broadly, it's pretty typical of the United States in the 19th century. And it's actually, in a lot of ways, really typical of the United States today, mm-hmm. that we have this kind of elaborate kind of theoretical language about public versus private and never the twain shall meet. But if you look at governance, there there are kind of constant kinds of interpenetrations of public and private, you know, anything from the ways in which charitable organizations will get funding to carry out what are uh, carry out social welfare policy, anything from that to, you know, I mean, it's not always good, or we can argue about whether or not it's good, but, you know, the privatized prisons are another kind of exemplar of this blended public-private relationship. Um, You know, Halliburton and its kind of um, activities that are arguably supplemental to the application of U.S. military force, you know, in in some ways that's also uh, in this tradition of the blended public-private relationship. So dog-catching um, is under the authority of the ASPCA in, in the mid-1890s. And it, and even though the public health department fights against that in the early 20th century and, is, and, and wants to kind of monopolize governmental authority over rabies prevention, they don't succeed. The ASPCA enforced the dog laws and ran the pound in New York City for about 100 years. It didn't get out of the... the that business until the 1990s, and it wasn't pushed out because of concerns over the blend of public and private involved. Um, the ASPCA got out because of a changing ethic and animal welfare advocacy in which they didn't want to be in the business of destroying healthy stray animals. So just that history alone, this history of um, the history of canine animal control in New York City, tells you something important about the longevity of this blended relationship between private and public in American governance and all the ways in which it is part and parcel of the ways in which um, we do things in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it also says something, too, that the, the that one of the ways in which people uh, on, on their street first saw state power or civic power was the mm-hmm. dog catcher. Mm-hmm. Which, which was actually a from a private organization, but but that was still a it was an ex it was that was that was the government in daily life. Yeah, and also I mean part of the kind of optics of the ASPCA doing animal control is that they dispatched people in kind of police like uniforms mm-hmm. with dedicated vehicles, and so they look like police in that sense. And they are exercising the police power, even though they're a private organization. I mean, you can think about security guards in this sense as well. Mm-hmm. If you look at you know security guards in American malls, there's this, also this kind of impression of officialdom when they're actually privately hired, right? Yeah. But, but the uniform helps to convey that. And the ASPCA made quite a lot about the, the sort of the orderly forms of power that their uniformed core of dog catchers represented versus the kind of disheveled sort of rough dog catchers that had been hired in the previous generation as part of the urban patronage network. And, and who engage in some wildly hilarious fraud as well, except if, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, which you discuss. Um, let's, uh, I want to conclude by a, a sentence you uh, have in your conclusion, which I, I loved, and I, I'd like to have you uh, explain it a little bit. Beyond the history of medicine, the social history of rabies and urban dogs attunes present-day observers to the stor- historically contingent nature of much that goes unnoticed in everyday social and political life. Um, what do you mean by that? Mm-hmm. I think... You know, what what I've enjoyed sort of thinking about in writing this book is just all the things that we take for granted as just expectations of daily life. You know, they're all kind of human inventions. You know, the fact that I can turn on my water faucet and drink the water is a kind of, you know, something one takes for granted that actually has a long history that, if you look into it, tells you a lot about 
sanitation and public health and its centrality to urban development in the late 19th and early 20th century. Um, so, you know, when you think about city life today, if you think about New York City, um, just the contrast between the rough and tumble nature of urban life in the mid-19th century, um, the fact that things like being able to engage in a fist fight was a prerequisite to having a, a kind of urban political career, as Amy Bridges has pointed out in, in her work, or just, uh, you know, or, yeah. or the fact that if you're a woman alone, walking in the street alone in the 1840s is a real challenge because you, you, you can expect to endure all sorts of harassment. Uh, children are constantly in the streets. A fair portion of them are living in the streets. Um, you know, childhood involves a, a kind of a level of autonomy that's unimaginable today. I mean, today we're the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. You know, nobody, people are hardly willing to let their children to walk to school anymore. And so, you know, how did we get from that kind of city to, you know, the, the sort of expectations we have today? Yeah. No one, yeah. In, no one in New York has the idea that they just let their, um, when they go to work, they just let their Rottweiler run in the street until uh, they come home. And it might be there. It might not. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you, know. you know, you're pretty sure he'll come home. Yeah. Whatever. He knows where it is. He yeah. Needs, he needs to eat. Yeah, exactly. But the idea that, you know, dogs should be disciplined, it should be well socialized, that, a, that an acceptable dog never bites people. I mean, this is really a 20th century invention. Um, that kind of dog as the norm still doesn't exist yet at the time that my book ends around 1920. Or things just like the removable of animal waste. I mean, the pooper scooper laws that were developed in the 1970s, I think they're absolutely unimaginable to people mm -hmm. in the 19th century. And you know, I, I'm not sure those laws would have would have worked had there not been plastic bags available everywhere and all the time. Well, there would have been, um, you know, there were they they had their own equivalent. They were called Italians or I mean, oh, wh wh recent immigrants. You know, uh, whoever was the most recent immigrant uh, with a shovel and a cart, and that's how it got done. But right. um, the, the what's interesting is the. Um, it's interesting. What's interesting there is the wrinkle that that there has to be a voluntary choice of the dog's owner to do that, and that before that wasn't considered part of uh, of the responsibility of a dog's owner. Exactly, but we've absorbed all of those norms, and all of the norms of kind of what today is responsible pet ownership, and all the ways in which you know cats and dogs in particular are pretty much full members of our families. Um, Again, that's a product of this massive project of social engineering that animal welfare advocates undertook in the second half of the 19th century. I mean, we could have imagined different results. Uh -huh. You know, horses, pigs, goats, cattle, they've been pretty much banned from the city. Um, there were debates that dogs didn't belong in the city and maybe they should be banned as well. Mm -hmm. But that never happened. Instead, they became beloved members of the family. So what it, what it says is, is that, um, I mean, I love that and I love the way that you're talking about this because it means that whatever I see as I look around me, I can question and say, why is that there? And was it always there? And it doesn't necessarily have to be there. Um, uh, when you start to think in terms of con historical contingency, uh, then there are few moments of like everyday life that can't become interesting. Mm -hmm. I think that's absolutely right. Um, and, you know, I'm as vulnerable to these norms as anybody. You know, our cats are like they live the best lives <laughs> and have all their needs catered to. But I also understand there there are historical reasons why I've been conditioned to to act that way. And this wasn't the only choice that we we had. There are plenty parts of the world where that level of sentimentality towards pets hasn't been made into a social norm. It's just deeply weird to them. It's nice to meet it's nice to meet people like that to to sort of check your own premises. Exactly. Or even you go outside of cities. We were living in Athens, Georgia for a while, and people let their cats and dogs just run loose. Yeah. Um, yeah. Perfectly 
I have uh, I, I have to admit that I did grow up in in the country and and that the, the sort of the first rule of the family I've seen this amongst other country families is uh, dogs and cats do not belong inside. Yeah, um, that's just that's the first rule. Um, mm. So it's a very different than a sort of uh, suburb. I've been suburbanized um, in thinking about dogs and cats uh, since then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean now the current notion is that cats don't belong outside which i think yeah to somebody who grew up in a rural area this is just absolutely ludicrous uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah i mean i think doing this kind of history makes you think about all of these sorts of issues my guest today has been jessica wong author of mad dogs and other new yorkers jessica thank you so much for being part of historically thinking thank you i've really enjoyed it For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 